0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we're going to have a very educational and exciting interview with Dr. Julie Holland, who's coming to us all the way from New York City. And we're going to be interviewing Julie on her latest book, Moody Bitches, the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. So stay tuned for this great interview with Dr. Julie Holland. By the way, I want to remind you that this is the same Julie Holland who wrote the book on ecstasy, MDMA. She also wrote the pot book and... She also wrote a bestseller about her experiences at Bellevue Hospital in New York. By the way, that Bellevue book was a national bestseller. It was called Nine Years on the Night Shift at the Psych ER. That's an exciting book for those of you who are interested in the inside of, uh, of major hospitals and cities. I grew up within walking distance, very short walking distance of uh, Bellevue myself, and uh, it's quite an institution. I'd like to interview her on that book sometime in the future. So stay tuned for Moody Bitches with Dr. Julie Holland. But first, a few news and notes in psychology and medicine. Now, from all over the world, we're getting research on the positive effects of exercise. I mean, it's coming in fast and furious from absolutely everywhere. Here's one. An hour or two a week of slow jogging may extend your life significantly, found a study in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. This was a large study with tens of thousands of people. Of course, the key word in the sentence, as is the key word in so many sentences in the scientific literature here, is may extend your life. The key word is may. When you say that, hear that word may, it means it may but it also may not. So you can't be certain. However, the evidence is coming in that some kind of exercise is definitely beneficial for all of us. Here's another one. High-impact exercise can improve knee cartilage. Now, I've got... My knees are just damaged all over the place from various activities, including a terrible motorcycle accident. And we've been taught... Take it easy on your knees. Take it easy on the cartilage, especially when they've been damaged. Listen to this. postmenopausal women with mild knee arthritis, we don't know how mild, can benefit and even slow disease progression with high-impact loading, jumping exercises, along with a rapid change in movement. This is sort of saying, you know, do more and, and let the body build up in resistance to it. So maybe you want to take a chance and do that or keep moving. Here's another one. Exercise to combat arthritis pain. Staying inactive if you have arthritis will result in loss of mobility and muscle strength, leading to increased pain and fatigue. Here's another one. Fitness in midlife is cancer preventive. Men who maintain a high level of fitness throughout midlife have about one-third less risk of dying from certain cancers after 65 than less fit. Well, all these studies are coming in, and they're basically saying the same thing, which is keep moving in some way. You don't have to become a marathon runner. You don't have to be running as fast as you possibly can. In fact, there's more and more evidence that just taking a nice, easy jog or a walk... But to keep doing it on a daily basis, how often? Probably four or five times a week. I mean, look, we eat every day. We sleep every day. We hopefully have sex every day. But what about um, exercise every day? How many of us do that? Um, Well, think it over, folks. Because no matter which research you read and where you're coming from, There isn't really much to argue about when someone says, or some scientist says, or some study says, hey, smoking cessation, a healthy and balanced diet, regular exercise, maintaining proper body weight cannot be overlooked. I mean, isn't that what our grandmothers all taught us? Maybe. I mean, how much do we have to have that drilled into our heads? But getting down to doing it, you know, there's theory and there's practice. Getting down to doing it is really the key, isn't it? I did an interesting thing this week that I want to share with you. I took a patient to the gym, and I gave him uh, a 25-pound barbell. And I said, hey, hold this in your two hands in front of you. And he did. And I said, you know, just walk around the gym carrying this uh, uh, 25-pound weight with you. And he did it for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I said, you're 40 pounds overweight. You're carrying more than that barbell. That's what it feels like to your body to carry that thing around. Now picture for a moment a little tube inside your body that carries something that we call blood, which has in it oxygen, which is what we need for energy. Imagine pushing down on that tube with a 25-pound weight. Imagine taking your garden hose and stepping on it with a 25-pound weight. Can you see what I'm getting at here, folks? This weight is pushing in on us, and it's dangerous. So if you want to have a little fun sometime, either go to a bowling alley and pick up a bowling ball or go to your local gym and pick up a 25-pound weight and see what it's like carrying it around, and then you'll know perhaps a little bit more experientially about what it's like for your body. So I guess that's the wrap once more on exercise. I hope I'm not boring you all too much with these constant reminders about the importance of keeping moving. But it is essential for health, and uh, and that's why we do it. And that's why I'm going to take up time from time to time with this topic. But again, remember grandma's basics, very basic, aren't they? exercise and sleep and proper nutrition, and gosh, we've been hearing that all our lives, and yet 70% of us are overweight or obese, and forty millioners or what is it, 35 million of us are still smoking cigarettes. What is that saying? What What is that saying? Maybe I, if I have a few moments, I'll ask Dr. Julie Holland today about what are we really saying by being so overweight? I mean, what what is that saying about us as a people? Are we all that depressed? Are we all that unhappy? Are we all What are we, and who are we? Who are we that in the year 2030, if our statisticians are correct, in the year 2030, 87% of the United States will be obese or overweight? Wow. Well, enough of me on that subject. Let's get on to Dr. Julie Holland and moody bitches. Just by way of background, Julie Holland wrote the ecstasy book, The complete guide, a comprehensive look at the risks and benefits of MDMA. You've heard on this program, I interviewed Dr. Phil Wolfson a few times, who's doing the MDMA study in Marin County right now. Uh, You've heard uh, Dr. Rick Doblin on this program talk about MDMA. Many of you have heard me talk about it in terms of its psychotherapeutic benefits back when it was legal before our suppressive government and oppressive government made it illegal Oh, I I get so upset just even saying that. What do I say here? That we have a government that for 55 or 60 years has suppressed scientific research? What is that about? And how are we as a people that we allow our government to suppress scientific research? This isn't Russia. It's the United States of America, folks. Julie Holland also wrote the pot book, a Complete Guide to Cannabis. What a courageous person she is. You know, it's not that easy to write these kind of books and, and, and be a professional because even the professionals have been brainwashed negatively about science. Or if not brainwashed, afraid. All afraid. Afraid of getting fired. Afraid of not making associate professor. Of, of not getting promoted because you're doing something that the government doesn't want done, which is research. My gosh. I better stop this. You'll get tired of hearing me rant like this. Weekends at Bellevue, she wrote, and now Moody Bitches. Moody Bitches, the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Julie.
1: Thanks for having me, Dr. Miller.
0: Richard, please, or I'll be calling you Dr. Holland all hour long. (laughs) Um, After writing this scientific book, The Ecstasy and The Pot Book, and then your wonderful book, Weekends at Bellevue, Nine Years on the Night Shift at the psyche R what led you, we're going to do broad strokes first and then get into details, what, what led you to, to write this book, Moody Bitches?
1: Well, I was just seeing this trend getting worse and worse where, you know, 20 years ago when I was a psychiatrist, if I had a woman come to my office, she was really sick and didn't know what was going on. And, and I had to really hold her hand and destigmatize the process of taking psychiatric medications. And she really needed them. But you know, 10, 15 years down the road, I had people coming to me who, you know, didn't have very significant symptoms and just basically wanted to know which medicine they should be on because they had seen all the ads for the different antidepressants. You know, could I explain the difference between Effexor and Wellbutrin? Uh, You know, their friends were on things. Their Pilates instructor was on something else. They were getting a lot of uh, information and advice about which medicine they should take without really looking at whether they were genuinely sick or whether it was that their their environment was sick and their response to their environment was sick. I mean, there's, you know, the way that we are living our lives is making us feel terrible. And the answer is not to sweep the dirt under the carpet and, and mask the symptoms by taking something that makes you feel good. The answer is to change the way you're living your life and, you know, take, take that carpet out back and beat the heck out of it and, and sweep your whole floor. So it's a, uh, I just started seeing this, sort of a new normal almost where more and more women were getting on psychiatric medications and uh, it's antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, but then also antipsychotics started being used for antidepression. and I started big pharma advertising more to women. I mean, they've always they've always targeted women, but it seemed like it was getting worse, and um, I just uh, I felt like I had to say something. You know, I feel like I need to turn this ship around, and it's a, it's a big ship. It's, it's not going to go quickly um but i just i felt like i need to you know start to join the parade or lead the parade against everybody just being medicated so that they don't know what's going on they become oblivious to how they're living and how their world is changing
0: so i said we're going to go from you know big broad strokes down to the details of your book what's the biggest takeaway that you would like from this book, for, for, for a woman who reads this book or a woman who has daughters and wants to pass the book on, what's the biggest takeaway, the one big thing you'd like them to take away from this?
1: Well, it's this idea of natural mood, that women are naturally cyclical and dynamic. If you're not taking oral contraceptives, if you're not taking antidepressants, it's normal to have times in the month where you feel great and times in the month where you feel lousy and you're more irritable and you're more sensitive. And that's natural. And the further away we get from nature and for what's natural for us as social primates, the sicker we're going to get. The book is really about returning to nature and, and like, literally go outside, get some sun, move your body, and get in your body. You know, all of us are spending a lot of time sitting. uh, We're on our phones. We're on our computers. We're in our cars. um, Just being in your body and moving your body and being outside with the grass and trees, that will make you feel better. You don't necessarily need to keep taking pills every day and continuing living in a way that's very unnatural for you.
0: Yeah, there actually is some scientific evidence now indicating that being out in nature is in and of itself healing. Right. Uh, and I know that there are people who are now experimenting with actually laying on the ground. Right. Uh, you know, if you've heard about that, right?
1: Yeah, there's something called grounding. I mean, That's in- right. I I talk quite a bit. I mean, this this is an evidence-based book. There's there's about forty pages of notes and just hundreds and hundreds of citations. It's it's a very uh, research-heavy book, but it's entertaining and easy to read. But I definitely go into the research and the studies behind why exercise is good for you, why being in nature is good for you, why being in sunshine is good for you, and also why just being uh, naturally cyclical. What are the advantages? Of, of being moody, that it really, for women, it's one of our biggest assets that we have got this intuition and empathy and emotional expression and uh, we can read other people's emotions. And if you, if you mute all of that, if you mute the sensitivity, you miss out on a lot of information.
0: I, you're implying that you said that there are times of the month when women naturally feel Lousy, a New York word, I think. Uh, (laughs) I mean, yes, there are just times of the month when women feel, quote, lousy. I mean, it's just that's something to be expected so that that's normal. And so if you feel lousy at certain times a month and you track it with your menstrual cycle and you know you're going to feel lousy, you just do and you just, that's how it is?
1: Yes. It, I mean, look, if it's... Income- That's pretty
0: scary, Julie, because we've got women, fortunately, I think we both agree, going into very high levels of government now, including the possibility of president. And are we to expect that on a regular... Well, no, she's too old, so she's post-menstrual, uh, uh, but... About, about,
1: what about uh, definitely post-menopausal. Right, a, but what, what about younger
0: What younger women who might be in Congress and Senate? we Are going to say one, every uh, once a month they're going to be in a lousy mood? Watch out? I mean, I don't know if we want that.
1: Um... There are some women who don't have premenstrual syndrome at all, and there are other women who are completely incapacitated by it and require hormones. Um, The majority of other women have some change in their mood over the course of their fertility cycle, and that is normal, and there are real advantages to that, and I talk about that in Moody Bitches. Um, But in general, women are quicker to calm themselves and get out of an emotional situation than men are, and... uh, you know the idea of sort of having revenge or having a vendetta or being angry and carrying a grudge for years. I mean, if you're if you're worried about people being emotional um, as politicians, um I think that's already been covered.
0: No, I'm not worried about them being emotional. My concern is more that they won't be allowed to be emotional because we live in a culture that wants to su- somewhat suppress uh, emotion. We've been working on that since the 60s. Remember when George Bach wrote the book, uh, you know, Intimate Aggression, Intimate Enemies, where he was saying, you know, some, some level of very safe, focus on very safe fighting is healthy, because otherwise you suppress all this stuff and you end up stuffed up full of junk inside, right?
1: Right. I mean, we all know that if you suppress a behavior, it's going to come out in perverted ways. So this idea that you can be celibate or um, that you can go against what your real sexual orientation is, it's going to come out in weird ways. So, you know, what's happened for centuries is that men have had their natural emotional side suppressed, and little boys are taught not to cry uh you know, don't act like a girl. But now what's happening is that women are getting this message more and more that it's not okay to be emotional. It's not okay to express your emotions or to feel your emotions. Um, and these are really dangerous, unhelpful and unhelpful messages yes. that getting and they're they're getting it also from big pharma. I mean I really think that the pharmaceutical industry they're targeting women in their advertising. They're advertising on in women's magazines, daytime talk shows much more than they are in, in magazines or male oriented shows, um, in terms of psych meds. And they're they're sort of they're exploiting women who feel vulnerable about the fact that they do get emotional. Um, you know, we are made to feel like this is abnormal. And you know, I'm not talking about people with major depression who That's right. Can't get out of bed and their sleep and their appetite and their energy levels completely distorted. And they need a psychiatrist and they need medication. I'm just I'm talking about this sort of cosmetic psychopharmacology where more and more women are on psych meds that are prescribed by non-psychiatrists, and then they have trouble getting off these meds. I and mean, that's the other thing no one's talking about. It's really hard to get off antidepressants. It's hard to get off anti-anxiety medicines. It's hard to get off sleeping pills. It's hard to get off stimulants. You know, there's millions of Americans who are taking medicine year after year after year only because... They can't stop what they started. They may not need it anymore. Their lives may have changed. But they are tolerant and dependent. They cannot get off their medicines easily. Um, and as soon as they start to pull back on the meds and feel lousy, they become convinced that they have a you know chemical imbalance and they need to stay on the meds, when really what they're experiencing is withdrawal.
0: That's exactly what Robert Whitaker said on this program, you know, his book, Anatomy, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Exactly what you said is what he said. Namely, that when people try to get off these medications, then they're running into neurochemical imbalances, and they feel crazy, and they think, "Well, I really needed the medicine to begin with, so I better get back on it." Exactly. Because and they're I going do- through a withdrawal, aren't they?
1: Right. And there are some psych meds that are harder to get off than others. I've certainly had people come to me saying, "You know, I've been trying to get off this medicine for years, but I've been, you know, I've been on it like an extra ten, twelve years now because oh my I haven't." And one of the things that I like doing that I think I'm good at um, is helping people to get off their medicines. And it's a, it's a slow process. And you need to put a lot of other things in place before you start to pull off these medicines. And sometimes it's not just behavioral changes. Sometimes you need other medicines to make it easier to get off certain ones.
0: When, so I, when I was doing drug treatment uh, uh, full-time back in the 80s, uh, I was able to detoxify people from cocaine and heroin in relatively short periods of time, you know that it's out of your system. You in, in, in three or four days, you can you can pretty much get it out. Is that not the case? Okay. Is that not the case with some of the medicines you're talking about? Or should we be I, should we be creating social model detoxification centers where people can go away for three or four days and get these things out of their system?
1: Not just three or four days. I mean, this is what people need to understand. Coming off psych meds takes weeks or months. It is not, in any case, a question of days. It is easier to come off of heroin or cocaine than it is to come off of most prescription psychiatric
0: medications. I want to repeat that for our listeners. That's very important, Julie. Dr. Julie Holland is saying that it's easier, in her experience, to come off, our professional, her long professional experience, it's easier to come off cocaine and heroin, which is a lot of my work, than it is to come off the psychiatric medicines that she is using and is encountering. That's an important thing for people to know. Is that because of the blood levels, Julie, that it, it gets into the blood and it takes that much longer to get out?
1: No, it's not. It's nothing to do with blood levels. Ah. It's, a longer, it's a longer process because when you take a, an antidepressant every day, you're, there's all this balance that has to happen with the receptors, basically. And when you stop the medicine, your brain has to create new receptors and create a new balance. Um, and it just it takes weeks and months. it's it's a, it's a long process. It's very uncomfortable. I often need to use other psychiatric medications to get people off what they're tolerant to or dependent to, and then I need to taper whatever I put in place to allow the first taper to happen. So it's it's at least a two- step process with medication. Um, and you know it's such an unnatural state. The other thing is a lot of women are taking oral contraceptives and antidepressants together. And estrogen and serotonin are really linked. They're yoked to some degree. So you have unnaturally high estrogen levels with the oral contraceptives, and then you have unnaturally high serotonin levels with the antidepressants. When you put those two together, I mean, I write in Moody Bitches about something I call the double whammy. It's a lot of women who are on oral contraceptives. You know, the pill and antidepressants. Um, And it it really puts you in this hyper-rational, hyper-accommodating state where you put up with a lot of crap that you normally wouldn't. You know, one advantage of a woman having premenstrual syndrome for a couple of days is that she becomes more critical and more irritated by things. And it's a chance to make changes in her environment um, and and potentially in the behavior of people around her. You know, I, I had a patient who called me from work because she wanted to go up on her antidepressant because she was crying at work and you can't cry at work. But when I talked to her about why she was crying, you know, her boss had behaved terribly and betrayed her and humiliated her in front of her staff. And if she just takes more medicine so she doesn't notice his bad behavior and she doesn't cry, that is enabling, you know, malignant behavior to go on around her. I mean, it's not doing her any favors. It's also not doing him any favors or her coworkers any favors.
0: I remember when Crozac first came out, Julie, and I read an article in a paper by a very astute journalist who said that he was taking Prozac and it was putting him in a good, better mood, and he was happier. And then he went to his mother's funeral and he realized he had no feelings whatsoever, and he said to himself, "This is the price I'm paying for taking right. this. That's what you're talking about, isn't it?
1: Right. I mean, one of the prices you're paying is that it's going to be very hard to cry and to really feel emotionally connected with people.
0: Well, if it's um, hard to cry, how do you orgasm?
1: It's nearly impossible for most women on a, on a solid dose of SSRIs to climax. It's a huge, huge problem. In my patient population... Women complain about low libido and inability to orgasm, and it is directly affected to the antidepressants they're coming in on.
0: And you're saying that 25% of the women in the United States are on one of these medications? Is that yes. correct?
1: First of all, in certain demographics, it's higher. Even higher. Over the course, you know, if you look at all adult women, and women in America, one out of four is taking a psychiatric medication. Wow. And, oh anxiety. and now the big thing is antipsychotics. I mean, more and more... Doctors and not psychiatrists are prescribing antipsychotics for this kind of malaise and depression that women are experiencing.
0: Do you mean like Abilify?
1: I mean like Abilify. Abilify the biggest, was the biggest moneymaker in America in 2013.
0: How do you as a psychiatrist feel about general practitioners prescribing psychiatric medicine?
1: Um,
0: I know I, you don't want to criticize your professional colleagues, but I, that's an honest question.
1: This is my colleagues, but the truth is that because of the way medicine is set up in America right now, it's all about customers. It's all about getting people in and out of the door and seeing people for six or ten minutes. A psychiatrist will spend 60 minutes, maybe even 90 minutes, before they figure out what the diagnosis is and what meds they want to start. Um, an internist, a, you know, a GP, a fam- family practice person, will spend six or ten minutes maximum before they're writing prescriptions and the person's out the door. So... Um, you know, looking at a psychiatric history, a family history, looking at the genetics, looking at treatment response, treatment response in families. I mean, there's a lot of things that really go into making the decision to start meds. And the biggest thing that no one is talking about is, okay, well, if we start you on meds, then what? Because you're going to feel good, and it's going to feel hard to come off. So then what? And
0: What's like, you know, the exit strategy like when we went into Iraq? We knew how to go in, but we didn't have a way to get out, and you're saying the same thing's happening on the personal on the microcosm level, huh? If you start these medications, how are you going to get off these medications? Julie, would it be fair, excuse me, I'm going to take a quick sidebar because it's 28 minutes. You're listening to Dr. Julie Holland, who's our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. She's talking about her book, Moody Bitches, the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. This is an important book for many reasons, and you want to read it. Julie, I want to ask you, Should we be warning people on this program who are taking these psychiatric medicines, who are not under the care of a psychiatrist, who are just taking them from a GP or an internist who sees them for five, six minutes, should we be giving them some kind of warning? Should we be telling them that they really ought to get to a psychopharmacologist or a psychiatrist? What's the proper thing to do here to protect our listeners?
1: I think that it's always better, if you can work with a specialist, it certainly is better if you're taking a psychiatric medication to be working with a psychiatrist. I think, you know, it's a no-brainer. I think that there are parts of the country where there aren't a lot of psychiatrists and they don't have that option. But, you know, what I talk about in Moody Bitches is that there there are a lot of things that you can do to feel better that don't involve pills. And, you know, one one of the things that I focus on quite a bit is this concept of inflammation. That, you know, you know this, I'm sure, Richard, but um, inflammation is the is the sort of breeding grounds for a lot of medical illnesses, like arthritis or heart disease or cancer or diabetes, Alzheimer's. They all have a basis in inflammation. All the autoimmune diseases have a basis in inflammation. Well, it turns out that depression and anxiety and insomnia also have a basis in inflammation. So a lot of the advice in Moody Bitches is really about an anti-inflammatory regimen, things that you can do to decrease chronic inflammation that will help your mood.
0: I'm thinking about what about the reverse? What about the possibility that the anxiety, in and of itself, is an irritant causing uh, inflammation?
1: Um, that's a good question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> because we you well, know, this is
1: what I will say: is that the lower your stress levels? I mean, you want to lower your stress levels. That stress, stress. We know that stress causes inflammation. Yes. So yes, it is. A, it is a two way street. Um, anything you can do to decrease stress is going to help to decrease inflammation. And anything you can do to decrease inflammation is going to help you with with your mood, with your cognitive functioning, and with your sleep.
0: So we're talking about the possibility of decreasing stress and decreasing the inflammation caused by stress, and at the same time, I want to quote from your book, right from the very first sentence of your book, Women today are overworked and exhausted. We are anxious and frazzled, yet depressed and burned out. If this is what we're doing to our women, and at the same time we're telling them to reduce stress and re- reduce inflammation, how do we do it? I mean, we, we've created a situation now where the women are in the workforce the way the men were. The workforce is the place where you're not supposed to show emotion. For gosh sake, how can you possibly cry when you're sitting at work or you're in a law court or you're, or you're doing some kind of other job? You have to walk around very serious and straight-faced. So we're giving them a double bind. We're telling them, come into the workforce, act like men, keep a stiff upper lip, suppress all the stuff, or take a drug in order to to not feel all these feelings, and at the same time, do everything you can not to inflame your system, because that's liable to result in some cardiovascular uh, event.
1: Well, you know, keep in mind that the women who work then come home after work to their second job. Oh. So... Um,
0: Don't I know it? My mom taught school, then she'd be shopping on, on the way home and then cooking dinner for my dad so that it would be dinner on the table when he got home at 6 from 55th Street and, and 7th and Avenue. You
1: know, <laughs> making sure the kids' homework is done, getting the kids to brush their teeth and get to bed, you know, doing laundry, and then you plop into bed completely exhausted and fried and you're supposed to also want to have sex. So, you're um, <sighs> being pulled in a lot of different directions. It's a and- cruel cool
0: joke. It's, it's a it's cruel joke, is what it sounds like. It really is.
1: Medicines have been put in place to enable the unhealthy behavior.
0: And that's what our culture is developing. Right. And we're drugging the, the 25% of the women on these psychiatric drugs alone, and we don't even know the rest of the things. T- you're not even including when you're saying one in four women is on a psychiatric med. Not including- we're not adding into that the women who are taking alcohol and who are taking coke and heroin and right. various other things, right?
1: not even including sleeping pills in that 25%. And I will tell you that there are some demographics. For instance, the demographic where I work, the women in New York City and Manhattan, those numbers are much higher.
0: What's the sleeping pill of choice? Uh, Ambien, what are they taking?
1: Ambien is still very, very popular. Um, there's another medicine called Lunesta that went generic Lunesta. not too long ago that's, that's got a little bit of a market share, but Ambien has the bulk of the market share when it comes to sleeping pills.
0: Let's talk about um, the sleep that women are missing because that's one of the, right on your, on your title of your book, right on the cover it says the sleep you're missing. What about the sleep that women are missing?
1: You know, one of the reasons we added that to the subtitle is because it turns out that that is a very, very popular Google search for women, is looking for insomnia cures. That's right. Um, Most women are sleeping six or seven hours a night, whereas the research is saying now you need between eight and nine. So none of us are sleeping enough. And one of the big problems that happens with perimenopausal hormone changes is that insomnia becomes a very big issue. and uh, anxious mothers, pregnant, uh, you know, newborns. There's lots of there's lots of uh, reasons for for sleep disorders in women that men don't have. And in general, you know, when I talk to men, um, they can sleep sitting up. They can sleep in a train. Or <laughs> uh, a lot of women I talk to need to be lying down. They need to make sure that their that their children are already asleep. You know, they have a lot of prerequisites before they can sort of power down. And men don't really have those same prerequisites. So a woman's a woman's sleep is, is uh, often, you know, one of the things that is most disordered when she'll come to my office. And
0: By the I, way, I wanted to explain that when I laughed there, it wasn't about the fact that women uh, need all those aids to sleep. It's when you said men sleep more easily because I learned to sleep standing up as a young man in, in Manhattan uh, on the subway to catch right. a quick nap in between, and I could. I found I could fall asleep standing.
1: Power down. I mean, men can definitely power down much more easily than women can. And it's a big problem because we... Even if we've done all the chores and the kids are down and everything and, you know, husband's had sex and so he's off snoring and then the women are awake and they're thinking about what they have to do tomorrow, what they did wrong today. You know, they're just going through these sort of mental acrobatics um, and they can't turn it off. So a lot, a lot of women are taking ambient sleeping pills. In,
0: addition, I, in I, addition to the one in four who are taking the psychiatric medications that you're right, talking about.
1: right. That, that one in four does not include sleeping pills.
0: What percentage, um, just roughly, what percentage of the women that you treat are overweight or obese?
1: I have to say that because I'm in New York City, I don't have a lot of obese patients. I mean, I, I've, I've got a few, but I'm sure that if I were practicing in the middle of the country, it would be a much higher percentage. The thing about New York City is that people walk. Um, so they don't, tend to be morbidly obese as much as people who are in a complete car culture where they're constantly uh, just going from the couch to the to the car. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know what I'm referring to, the statistics I gave before, they're very concerning about the uh, about these increasing levels of obesity and, well, and overweight. I was, just,
1: I was just in Amsterdam talking to a lot of Dutch women, um, and they were all saying that when they came to America, the thing that freaked them out the most was how fat everybody was and how sedentary everyone was um I think that our what we're eating is a huge problem in terms of inflammation and I think you know the processed foods are inflammatory and being sedentary is inflammatory and so it ends up sort of cycling on itself you know inflammation causes obesity but then fat creates inflammation so it, it gets sort of exponential as soon as it, as soon as you start getting a little overweight it can really be a you know sort of a, a runaway train where it's It's cycling on itself because the obesity and inflammation feed each other. Um, And then when, you know, you get into these pre-diabetic situations, um, I have to say that I don't have a ton of overweight patients. I'm I'm happy to say. But one of the reasons why I don't have a ton of overweight patients, Richard, is that I am a nudge. My patients stay with me for years and years, and every single time I talk to them, I bug them about cardio. I bug them about exercise, about moving their bodies. Every day, staying in your body, staying physically active. So I don't have a lot of overweight patients because they, you know.
0: They listen a bit.
1: They'll either do what I say or they'll leave me because <laughs> I will not let up on this.
0: Uh, yeah. cardio,
1: cardio is king, and if you want to feel better, you've got to move your body. I'm and then I talk quite a bit about anti-inflammatory diets and, and really cutting back on flour and sugar and processed foods, the white powders yes. um, And and the additives and preservatives. Um, they're making us sick and they're making us feel miserable and they're making us fat. So, you know, a lot of doctors don't... I remember I, I started talking to my patients more about diet, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago or something, and one of them said, you're the first doctor who ever asked me anything about what I eat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've heard that over and over now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I ask somebody what they eat for breakfast, they start telling me, like, you know, no doctor asked me what I eat for breakfast. And, like, they should because, it's you know, it's fuel for the machine. and How you feel... I mean, it's so obvious and basic, but when I was in med school, we did not learn about nutrition at all. We had no discussions about food or what to eat or what was healthy. We learned about vitamins in terms of the chemical equations that there are cofactors in, but nothing about nutrition at all. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's changing. I'm I-
0: sure hoping that's changing. I mean, I took one lecture on the, on, on the uh, pancreas, and that was the end of me eating carbohydrates for breakfast for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah. Good. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: Um, No, I just, one patient, I just told him to cut out orange juice in the morning and it made a huge difference. Like, it doesn't take much.
0: By the way, for those of you listening, the, the reason Julie is saying this and the reason I said that about the pancreas and cutting out the carbs is because... The carbs will give you a nice spike. you will give you some fast energy, but you know just for, with all the various uh, things that give us a spike, there's then going to be a drop. So then an hour and two hours after that, you're going to be down about, what, 9 or 10 o'clock or 10.30. Whereas if you have protein in the morning, you're going to get a more even burn across the board, and you won't have the dip, and that's why she and I are saying that. And that's an important important for people to know the difference between that. And, I and, and, right, it's amazing that it's not being... They're uh, still not being taught in medical schools. We hope that's that's switching. Talk about switching. I want to switch over now, and have you talk, please, a bit about two of the most two of the most popular psychiatric medicines. Uh, first, it's going to be Zoloft. And it, uh, before we talk, I want to say something about Zoloft. Are you familiar with the Duke study where they compared um, Zoloft to exercise? If not, I'll give a, a brief summary of it.
1: Yeah, I am, but you should go
0: ahead for your listeners. Okay, there were three groups in this study. One group got Zoloft, one group got exercise, and one group got Zoloft and exercise. Remember, Zoloft is an SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. What that means is that the little receivers inside the junction box that pull in the Zoloft and distribute it, they get blocked by this medicine, so that the 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 the, uh, the uh, serotonin builds up, and it, so it's a blocker. And so one group got the Zoloft, one group got exercise, one group gets both. Pre testing, post testing for depression, the people on the Zoloft did the best. The people. I mean, excuse me, the people on the exercise did the best. I beg your pardon. The people on the exercise did the best. The people on the Zoloft did the worst until they looked at Zoloft and exercise. And guess what? The people on Zoloft and exercise did even worse. And what they theorized there was that the Zoloft actually counters the effect of the exercise. And there was a, by the way, they did a follow up on that three or four years after that and found the same thing. And yet, We continue to give Zoloft, I I guess in part, Julie, it's because it's easy, you can't get some people exercise, so if it's either nothing or something, is that, I mean, what's the rationale for continuing in the face of this kind of evidence?
1: Well, you know, I always joke in my office if I could just write a prescription for exercise, and you would actually take it—that's an- <laughs> what I would do. And I and I have actually written down on a piece of prescription paper, you know, like specific cardio, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, forty minutes, you know, just to make it sort of more official because it's it's so easy to go home and fill the prescriptions and take the pills every day, and it's much harder to you know go outside for a walk or a run or get to the gym. I mean, I understand that it's challenging, and that's why I spend time talking about it with and enabling them, figuring out how to make it work for them. I mean, everybody's got, you know, long hours at work and when can they go? And, and we sort of construct a plan. Um,
0: if I were living in Manhattan, I think one thing I would do is I would park further away than where I'm going if I ever drive and force myself to walk from where the car's parked to where I'm going just to get some blocks in.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell patients to, you know, get off the subway a couple.
0: Oh, times. oh, terrific.
1: So just if they can walk. But I also, I um, you know, I really like my patients doing things like yoga. Um, or I, I, like, I like Bikram yoga. I went through a long phase of really enjoying running. I think it's important just to find something that you like that you don't resent. If you hate going to the gym, then don't go to the gym. Just go outside for a walk. Put on some music on your headphones and just walk around. You know, it doesn't have to be... something that you resent and that you are, you know, trying to get out of. I mean, optimally it's something you actually enjoy that makes you feel good and makes your body feel good. And, you know, I talk in in Moody Bitches quite a bit about the cannabinoid system and and how cannabis is an anti-inflammatory medicine. Um, I also talk about how the endocannabinoid system floods your brain with cannabinoids when you're doing moderate exercise. You know, everyone talks about the runner's high as being an opiate base, that it's endorphins. But there's a lot more research to suggest that it's actually cannabinoid based. Um, so, you know, my point is that exercise makes you feel good, and it has not only anti inflammatory property, but it also helps to grow brain cells. And granted, antidepressants can help to grow, grow brain cells, but you're better off doing it with exercise. And this, this idea that combining antidepressant and exercise will make you feel even worse than antidepressants alone um, is like it's hard for me to swallow, it's hard for me to accept because. Um, but it just, you know, it makes me more committed to, to using exercise as a way to help my patients get off their medicine, which is what I do. Um, when I have people finally get off their medicines, there's a few things that reliably make it easier for patients to get off their medicines, And one thing is cardio. If, I, if somebody turns into a runner, it's much easier for them to taper their meds.
0: Let's. Um, I, I want to underline that. That's very important. Did you hear that, folks? If you if you're a runner or let's say an exerciser, Dr. Holland is saying it's easier to get off the psychiatric medications. Thank you for letting me underline that. Sounds very important. Um, and uh,
1: and I forgot the other thing. That I
0: was- okay. Well, I want to come back. Abilify is an antipsychotic. Soloft isn't, but Abilify is, and yet Abilify. Is, is a major seller in this country. Talk a little to us a little bit about Zoloft and Abilify, please.
1: Okay, well, first of all, Abilify is a really good medicine, and it was originally designed to treat schizophrenia. And if you have schizophrenia, it is one of the best antipsychotics you can take. I think it does really amazing things for schizophrenia. And I certainly saw it work wonders at Bellevue and in my private practice a few times that I did work with schizophrenics. Um, but schizophrenics are only 1% of the world population. If you can target half the world's population, you're going to make a little bit more money. So Abilify started targeting women with depression, women who are on meds who weren't getting really good response from their meds and and recommending that Abilify be used as an add-on to treat depression. And they got an FDA indication to be used as an add-on, and that's really when the money started rolling in for them. Um, Now, Zoloft is the most popularly prescribed antidepressant among non-psychiatrists, and I think that's important to remember the way zoloft really got its foothold is that um, Pfizer um, would send the drug reps out to to the family practice docs and the internists and the GPs and they would have samples for you know antihypertensives like medicine for blood pressure things like that but they're but the drug reps for Pfizer would also give samples of zoloft and and tell these doctors who weren't psychiatrists if your patient's complaining that they're anxious or depressed or have trouble sleeping, this is a medicine you can use. So really got its foothold because it, it was prescribed by non-psychiatrists. But um, the SSRI that I prescribe that I actually like is, is Lexapro, and that is the, the one that I believe is more commonly prescribed by psychiatrists than Zoloft. But Zoloft is often very high in the mix. And at one point, I think it was 2010, Zoloft, Zoloft sold more units than Tide, the, anti, the, the detergent. Um, so it's very commonly prescribed and commonly taken. I'm not crazy about Zoloft because I believe a couple of things. First of all, I think it has a lot of GI side effects. Um, we know it can make people nauseous, it can cause diarrhea, this sort of thing. Hold it
0: aside when she said GI, folks, that's uh, gastrointestinal, just for everybody.
1: <laughs> I think my big complaint with yeah. Zoloft is that it can really make your entire pelvis numb, make oh. much less sexually responsive, and make it much more difficult to climax.
0: Wow. Uh, Julia, do you mind if we take a few calls? Oh, go ahead. Okay. If you want to call in, folks, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. Pick up your phone, call in, ask Dr. Holler. Here's an opportunity to get a free psychiatric consult. <laughs> oh, no, it's not free, Richard.
1: I'm going to be sending everyone a bill.
0: Okay. Well, you will be billed, but since yes. we... Okay. It'll be uh, coming through the Internet. Um, you mentioned in your book, this is something I've wanted to t- sort of tease you about in reading in the book. In one, uh, two pages that I looked at, just, just two pages with the book open, you use the word horny four times. Really? Yeah. And throughout the book, you use the word. You love that word, horny. Okay. And, and so I think the, the, the ideology of that word must come from the male phallus standing up erect and looking like a horn. Right. You use it about women. So, are you? Uh, one, uh, do you? Is that a way of saying that since the clitoris gets engorged with blood during sexual excitation, that's a kind of little horn, and women are horny that way? Or uh, what, talk to us a little about the clitoris and the place of it in human sexuality, please. Look,
1: there, there aren't that many great. Words for women being aroused. I mean, you know, libidinous is is a little bit unwieldy. I heard a great word recently, a, a phrase which was "ladywood,"
0: really ladywood, <laughs> very good, was very funny. Um,
1: <laughs> but you yeah, know, I'm sorry to hear that it was that I redundantly used any word because I really I don't want to.
0: It wasn't overly redundant, it was just sort of interesting because it kept bringing my attention yeah. to a you know, kind of gender-based uh, uh, philosophy of, you know, are we calling the clitoris, you know, that's an argument that's going on for 100 years since Freud, are we calling the clitoris a little penis, and, you know, or not, and et cetera, et cetera. Well,
1: it's not that little. You know, one of the things I talk about in Moody Bitches is the clitoris is actually a lot bigger than anybody realizes. <laughs> You're just seeing the external nub. The clitoris has, has internal legs. Um, that can go to between six and nine millimeters, so it's, I'm, centimeters, so it, um, we, we hide most of our erectile tissue inside our bodies, women, the little external nub you're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg, not Literally. Well, if
0: you're saying it goes up to nine millimeters, there's two point mean, five four uh, centimeter centimeters in, in an inch. You're talking about a clitoris that's three inches long. Now, that's not no that's no longer um, a not little tiny tip happen. of an iceberg.
1: I would encourage you and all your listeners to do a Google search on the three dimensional size of a clitoris, and you will see that it is a very complicated organ. It's not just this little external nub. It goes internally, and it surrounds the urethra, and it surrounds the the bottom of the vagina. It's a large internal organ that gets engorged, um, just as a man's phallus gets engorged.
0: So there's a, a lot of area that's available for excitation and stimulation and, and sexual pleasure.
1: Yeah, I've, I've got, you know, I talk quite a bit about sex, as you figured out, in Moody Bitches, and there's a great chapter on on sex and, you know, why women have so much trouble climaxing and how to make it easier, um, that I think is very helpful. And I also think it's a really good book for men to read. I mean, first of all, the, the sex chapter would be great for men to read because it would help their partners. Um, but yeah, I,
0: also, I want I, to underline that and say definitely I agree that it would be it's an important chapter for men to read, with one exception. I want to take one exception to it, uh, okay. which is... You, you advocate in, in several uh, different uh, areas of your book where you say you should, you know, talk, you talk about weekly sex. And I'd like to know why aren't you advocating daily sex?
1: Well, look, for some women, weekly is already a pretty big jump. I, I don't have any problem with daily sex, but most women don't want to have sex every day. Men want to have sex every day. And oh. there's a big, this is one of the things I talk about in the sex chapter, is that. Is that Partners need to be honest about what their desires regarding frequency are, because there's going to be a really big discrepancy with what a woman thinks is okay and what a man thinks is okay, and there are a lot of men who feel like they need to ejaculate every day, and that's fine, but many women do not want to have sex every single day. It's just not... uh, you know, they're tired. It's a, it it they're happen. tired
0: because they're all exhausted and stressed out and working and coming home, taking care of the kids and then doing the dishes and falling apart. I, I want right. to take a call here. We promised we would. So l- let's all see right. if we can do that, Michael, please. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello.
1: Hi. 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 I'm dreaming. I was dreaming before I got on antidepressants. <laughs> and um, I went off, and now I can't dream.
0: Thank you. That's fascinating. What do you make of that, Julie?
1: Well, first of all, the thing to keep in mind is that there's dreaming and there's remembering dreaming, and those are two very different things. So it may be that you're dreaming and you don't remember dreaming, and one of the things actually that controls whether you remember dreaming or not is the cannabinoid system, and if people... Uh, People who smoke pot regularly or smoke before bed tend to not remember their dreams as much as people who aren't smoking. And one thing I hear from my patients who are pot smokers is that when they stop smoking pot, they start dreaming like crazy. But I have to say that I actually haven't heard too much from patients about the change in dream frequency with antidepressants. It's more of something I've heard about in relation to smoking pot or quitting smoking pot. So, you know, the question is, is she dreaming or is she not remembering her dream? And also, is she using any cannabis?
0: That's an important one. I hope you all heard that, folks. Dr. Holland is saying that if you're using cannabis, then there it's a higher percentage of you will not be remembering your dream. It doesn't mean you're not having them, but you won't be remembering them. Let's take another call. That last one was a great call. Hi. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes. Yes. Hi. I was wondering about... Uh, Lexapro, Wellbutrin, and Geodin. I have a girlfriend that um, takes all those for bipolar mania or or schizophrenia. And she's also going through menopause. Thank Bye. you very much. That's, that's a great so, question.
1: It is an important question. Perimenopause, which is the period leading up to when the periods stop. You know, menopause is one day. It's the one-year anniversary of when your period stopped. But there's like a seven-year period leading up to period stopping And maybe six or seven years on the other end of your period stopping, that makes up the 14 years of perimenopausal symptoms. And a lot of those symptoms are primarily psychiatric, and they're related to mood, insomnia, appetite. They look like depression. Women who've never seen a psychiatrist will show up at a psychiatrist's office during this perimenopausal phase. It's the most popular time for a woman to see a psychiatrist or to see a GP about psychiatric complaints. So the problem here, first of all, you say, you know, maybe she's got bipolar, maybe she has schizophrenia. That means she needs a psychiatrist because those are two very different diagnoses which are treated with very different medicines. Now, if you're asking about Lexapro and Welbutrin, that is a combination that I use quite a bit in my office. Um, It's, you know, the side effects of one sort of cancel out the side effects of the other. And between the two of them, they make a very solid antidepressant. The geodon is an antipsychotic, which is being used as a mood stabilizer. But the question is, are these just natural hormonal fluctuations that are affecting her energy level and her mood, and does she have schizophrenia, does she have bipolar disorder, or does she have severe perimenopausal symptoms that would actually do better if she were addressing them hormonally and seeing an endocrinologist or a gynecologist to treat the hormonal fluctuations?
0: Julie, before, we have about uh, three minutes left, and I want to uh, ask you to talk a little bit about female selection of males and what you call CADs and DADs.
1: Right. So uh, the way the way that we go about mate selection has a lot to do with where we are in our fertility cycle. And if you're on the pill, you're not going to have a cycle, so your, your mate selection is going to be completely skewed. But um, when women are fertile, they're more likely to choose uh, chiseled men who are have high testosterone, low voices, very masculine, kind of alpha males. When they're not fertile, they're more likely to choose men who may be um, good at staying home and helping with the kids or sharing what they have. Uh, so there's this idea of a CAD, which is like an alpha male, kind of a tough guy, motorcycle jacket, leather, you know, um, scruffy beard, like he's very macho and manly and you're attracted to that because you want the, the, the sort of highest quality sperm that you can get when you're fertile. But the rest of the time, you're looking for non-genetic materials that can be shared. So you want someone who's more like a dad. So when you're on the pill, you choose dads more than cats. And when you're fertile, you choose cats when you're fertile, and dads during the rest of the time when you're not fertile.
0: Oh, there's something scary about what you're saying here, Julie. I mean, it sounds like the the guy that you want to be with is not the guy you want to have a lot of fun with, and vice versa. I mean, how do you work this out? You need two husbands.
1: Well, see the, Well, this gets into an issue that I talk quite a bit about in, in Moody Bitches, which is the issue of monogamy not actually being natural for our species. And, you know, a lot of women who are paired with someone who is a good provider and a good father, when they're fertile they still may find that they're attracted to an alpha male if one is available. Um, and it may not be, you know, the person that they've vowed to stay committed to. So the other thing about the pill is that it deranges your pheromone processing. You know, the way that we choose mates is, is largely based on scent. And the, the reason that it's based on scent is that the, the pheromones and the scent carry information about, about genetic susceptibility. So if I'm, if I'm resistant to five illnesses and I meet a guy who's resistant to five other illnesses, then between the two of us, our kids are going to be resistant to ten illnesses. Mm-hmm. That's a good match. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm not on the pill and I smell him, I, you know, I take in his pheromones, it helps me to figure out that he's a good match. But when you are on the pill, you end up pe- choosing people who are more genetically similar so that, you know, maybe they're, they're resistant to the same five things you are. Um, that you end up choosing what's called a brother instead of an other, somebody who's much more genetically similar. And if you come off the pill, sometimes you discover that you don't like the way that your partner smells. So I actually encourage my my patients who are really ready to settle down and have a baby and are really looking for a mate that they get off the pill um, and use non-hormonal birth control, which I know is inconvenient, (laughs) um, but I think... It's, it's a better way to choose a mate. And then you've got really interesting issues, Richard, about how um, SSRIs, the serotonergic antidepressants, affect mating behavior that because women are less horny, because it's harder for them to climax, and because they're sort of blasé and complacent and think everything is fine, they don't have the same behaviors around attracting a mate um, or becoming obsessively in love with a mate because their brain chemistry is totally different. You know, when you're in love with someone, you're actually in a low serotonin state where you're obsessing about them and you need them and you have a lot of angst around them and it's easy for you to climax with them. But when you're taking SSRIs, you've got the exact opposite. And That's, we got to st- stop you
0: right there. When you, I'm sorry, Julie, we're running out of time. I beg your pardon. Ahead. Don't mean to be rude. Uh, but you heard that, that last sentence. When you're taking SSRIs, you're in a very different kind of psychophysical condition julie i want to thank you so much for the privilege of uh, of interviewing you it's been a great honor really i'm a fan of yours and i hope you'll make time in your extremely busy schedule so that i can interview you on the ecstasy book and the pot book maybe we could do the two of them together if you'd be willing sometime in the future
1: we should do that richard sounds like a good
0: idea thank you i would love to yeah it's been a terrific uh, experience interviewing you And uh, I hope everybody who's listening has enjoyed the book. is Moody Bitches by Dr. Julie Holland. You want to look it up on Google and get a copy. And you guys, you want to read that chapter on sex. It's going to improve your sex life, I promise. And so thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.